Hey, this is a radio program called The Official Tapes. This is where we get into the official releases from The Grateful Dead. Every so often we do take a side trip and see what's going on in the wonderful world of The Grateful Dead. It's not uncommon to uh, find a Grateful Dead auction or find an auction that has Grateful Dead memorabilia. However, when Sotheby's jumps on the scene, well, they take it to a whole new level. My name is Richard Austin. I'm the head of the Books and Manuscripts Department here in Sotheby's, New York. That man is going to be giving us an inside look of From the Vault, property from the Grateful Dead and friends. And he's also going to give us a really unique look on the Grateful Dead themselves. A few years ago, one of the executives in our company was approached by someone from the dead camp saying, hey, we've got a warehouse full of this great musical equipment. We don't know what to do with it. And so I went out and visited, you know, this is before the pandemic. So it's been a while. Um, probably three years ago, and took a look and just thought this would be a great sale for the fans. And that's what the, the dead team thought as well. So you've got stuff that's consigned by Steve Parrish and also from Strider Shirtliff, Renrod's son. So, you know, you don't get much closer to the band than those two. I mean, you know, they were there at the beginning and all through it reception has been great. We've had more bids coming in a shorter period of time than I remember on, on any sale in recent memory, I think. It's just really fun to see, you know, the bids creep up and, and what people are enthusiastic about and what surprises you. I will tell you the lot that certainly seems to resonate so far with so many people because of the number of questions we've got about it so far is uh, Jerry Garcia's Macintosh, the Budman, which it's a Macintosh 2300 that, that, that he used for years in the wall of sound. And that's the, the power amp that his Fender twin went through to even boost that sound even more. And, you know, it's, it's an integral part of his guitar sound, and it's also instantly recognizable because it has that little Budweiser Budman sticker on it. So if you start you know, doing searches for image searches on Google, you're going to see a lot of images of that amp on stage. So I think the combination of it being so immediately recognizable visually and sonically has been a huge draw for people. One of the things that I think is really interesting is Owsley's chemistry set or the, the remaining parts that he gave to Ramrod. Um, I mean, everybody knows the history of Owsley with the band and his history of being an LSD chemist, but you know, that's one of the lots that I think really links the Grateful Dead story to the wider story of American culture, which is incredibly important. You know, one of the interesting things is that when you look at all the equipment we have, it, it does span from, you know, the 60s when you're looking at tube amps and really crude touring uh, road cases, you know, all the way up to the end of the band where you've got, you know, digital effects and full racks and really the embrace of digital technology, you know, not just with the guitars, but with the, the percussion. So they were constantly changing with the time and, and embracing whatever new sonic developments came about. And I think that's one of the more interesting aspects of the sale as well.
but in terms of favorite lots, that sort of changes for me on a day-to-day basis. Actually, one of the stage backdrops, because, I mean, they're huge, but they're so amazing when you actually unroll them and look at them, and you can see the photos of them behind the band. Uh, the Cyclops backdrop and the 20 years so far backdrop for two really great lots as well. you got to have a big space to display them, but they're incredible to look at. For the t-shirts were property of Dan Healy. Well, he just, throughout his career with the band, he would just keep the t-shirts from whatever gig. We were contacted by someone in his family saying, you know, my dad still has all these t-shirts, would you be interested? And of course, we have the, some t-shirts for sale in the auction, but there's others that you can just buy now on our website as well, because he had so many of them. So the ones we put in the auction are the ones that we thought were really kind of the more rare and the more iconic, like the first Grateful Dead t-shirt from 69, also the t- a t-shirt from Cornell. So sort of the major gigs, closing of Winterland, Watkins Glen. The guitars, almost all from Bob Weir's collection. And because he wanted to add some guitars in there, and, and you know, he hasn't really sold any guitars in the past to you know, really make that a driver for people as well. You know, it's really amazing to see the range of guitars in there, whether it's Alvarez acoustics or some of the, the Black Knife modulus guitars that he was so famous for playing in the 80s. That situation where you don't see that many modulus guitars in the market, period, but have one from Bob Weir, who's without a doubt the most recognizable player of those guitars is, I think, for, for guitar collectors and players is really something special. I think the, the real crucial aspect of it is that we were able to work with Steve Parrish, who, you know, he'd been with the band since 69. And, you know, if you're looking at an amplifier, yes, it's a, it's a Fender Twin or it's a Macintosh 2300, but it's up to Steve to sort of tell you the background and his memory for the when and where and how it was used is remarkable. And that's, we wanted to put as much of that into the sale as we could. Going through the warehouse, and it was packed. You couldn't really see everything. And so the first time I just followed him around and he would sort of look at something and talk about it. And the more that he did that, the more detail he had on objects, you know, I was like, man, this is great. You know, there's, this is exactly what people are going to want. I mean, a good example is there's a lot in the sale that's a typing table, right? And, you know, it's over in the corner. It's just a little metal table that you put an electric typewriter on back in the late 60s, early 70s but it had a, a Grateful Dead sticker on it. I just happened to say, oh, what's up with the typing table? And it turns out they had that typing table, I, I think from the early 70s, so they had it for decades. They used it when they first got an electric typewriter. He named all the people in the office who used it. And when they got their first shipment of the first Grateful Dead stickers, they put one on it. And so it was, you know, again, it's all about the story. And his reminiscences about the equipment go from really technical of, you know, where they used it in the wall of sound, why they did it too. He was in a music shop in 1971 and because Jerry was looking for a certain pedal and this is where he bought it, this is what they used it for. And those are the stories that people want to know because it's one thing to know and identify what sort of equipment they use, but the real backstory to it, which Steve was so important for, it was basically sitting in front of a piece of equipment letting him uh, remember. 
And, you know, Steve is, is really scrupulous about stuff too, which really impressed me because, you know, you look at an amp, like a Fender Twins. Oh, was this in the Wall of Sound? No, 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 no. That was Jerry Garcia band. You know, he, he correctly identified everything um, and wanted to make sure that things were right. You can't just rely on someone's recollection necessarily, but you know, for things like in this sale, luckily there's a lot of images online of the dead live. So you know, Steve would say, "Oh, this was played at X." You can go back and find that it was most of the time because there's so much information that's come out because of the internet in the last 10, 15, 20 years. You know, for instance, one of the guitars in the sale. Someone said, oh, there's some guys out in Germany who've been cataloging all the images from the dead from 65 to 75, and you know, they can find an image in a second for something. So it's sort of a combination of the consigner and the story there, and also if there's any objective picture or information out there as well to corroborate it. You know, the dead's history is a history of live concerts, and sometimes checking and making sure, hey, you said this was used live, do you know the exact dates? And most of the time, yeah, we, we know enough that it's on this tour, but, you know, guys have come and, and found photos, you know, that they've sourced somewhere showing some items that were on stage. It's sort of a, a trail that you follow. One of the problems that the market for a lot of musical instruments and things would have is you have to be able to, there's a lot of Jimi Hendrix, supposedly Jimi Hendrix guitars in the world, but actually proving that is much more difficult. So one of the things that was really attractive about this sale is it's consigned directly by the band and it's consigned by their either the, the son of one of their earliest roadie or by Steve, who's I think the second oldest roadie that has been, been with him the longest. The majority of the sale is made up of, of toured equipment. Um, you know, people want to know if things are still working and in most cases they probably aren't because they've been stored since the dead stopped touring. Um, but the equipment is such that it's like the Macintosh amps are built like tanks. All the stuff can be restored. And if a speaker has a, a blown cone or something, you can replace that. You know, it's interesting to see you got people who want to own a piece of the wall of sound for nostalgia and others that want to own it for nostalgia, but also maybe want to integrate it in their home stereo system, which can be done and would be amazing. But it's been fun sort of fielding all the questions and some are, are much more detailed than others. And having said that, you know, someone said the other day, are you sure this was 1970 or 71? So there's a little wiggle room on one or two things, but the fan base is so knowledgeable too, that they're able to spot these when they see them in the catalog and know in many cases when and where they were they were played. And I think that that sort of passion that, you know, people have been following the band for decades and in some cases, a much shorter period of time. I mean, not to digress, but one of the things that sort of surprised me is the difference in age groups that are coming forward as fans. You know, you, you'd all expect people to be, you know, sort of the boomer age or a little bit younger maybe, but it's almost like it's skipped a generation. I don't know, it's weird to see. I mean, you've got guys in their 20s and 30s coming in looking at stuff and then people who were sort of the same age as the band, interested in things. But the diversity of age groups that have, that have showed interest has been really surprising and pleasing. That's another thing about the dead community. They are happy to share their opinions.
when I first started thinking about doing this, you know, it's most of the time when you're pricing things at auction, you're looking for what something comparable is sold for. So you know that, you know, let's just take a guitar for, for ease of comparison. So you know that a 1969 Fender Rosewood Tele sells on reverb or at a vintage guitar store for X. So you have a basis for price for that. So, you, you know, you know, sort of know what the market will bear. But when you're dealing with things like speaker cabs and, you know, uh, a crate practice amp that, that Bob Weir used, well, you know, a crate practice amp in and of itself is not that valuable an object. You know, it's like five, six hundred bucks or something, you know. But how do you account for the the ownership you know that it's history with bob weir or the history of a guitar pedal jerry garcia so what i decided to do was basically try and keep the lots as in as cheaply as possible so price things as much as you as, as you can by what it would go for without any history to it and then let all the fans decide i mean you might think that that's worth two thousand dollars but if three other people think it's worth more than suddenly you start saying, yeah, okay, well, it is worth more because someone else is willing to pay more. So, you know, it becomes a combination of what you're willing to pay versus obviously what someone else is willing to pay. And there is that, that heat of the moment in the competition. You know, you, 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 if you've got your heart set on something, you're probably going to go past your budget, especially if there's somebody else that has their heart set on something and, and they're going past theirs. Being head of the book department, we usually sell rare book and manuscripts in this department, which would seem to be an odd fit for the Grateful Dead, but our department really crosses over into what I call cultural history. And, you know, we've had some successful sales in the past dealing with that, with, you know, selling Bob Dylan manuscripts, for instance. And I looked at a sale like this is not just a, a sort of reverb shop sale, because it's more than that, because, you know, if you're going to think about a really essential american band and their story from the 60s all the way up to the present you know you're not going to find a better example than the grateful dead and you know the range of one thing that you're sort of noticing is the number of, of grateful dead fans that are out there that people you didn't know were into the dead deeply that said yeah i'm a huge fan or my wife's a huge fan or my husband's a huge fan and as one of the guys that came to look at the stuff early said yeah we're everywhere <laughs> so and i've come to understand that Any sort of collecting, at least, is driven in part, at least, by emotion. No matter what you're, what we sell, whether it's a painting or a book or, you know, it's not like people need this stuff, but there's, a, there's an element of really wanting it. And for the dead fan base, you know, they're, they're so passionate about things and so knowledgeable. And, you know, the, the items that were on tour, whether, I mean, we have stuff going back to the late 60s, but there's material from all eras. So someone who's a huge fan can say, you know, I own a speaker that was at a show I was at in 1985. And that just gives them an immediate connection to the band, I think, in a way. You know, once we see how this auction finishes, then there might be another trip out to Northern California for me to, to take a look and see. You know, it's been really pleasing to see the fans' response on this, but 
I think for most of the wall of sound stuff, that's that's pretty much it that we've got in, in the sale. Um, I don't think there's going to be any, any wall of sound treasures coming out from the band themselves because what was in the warehouse is what they had. Um, there might be one or two other things that, that come out, but I think the majority of, of the stuff that's easily explained, it, it has come out of the warehouse for the sale. No one toured like this. I mean, every live show that you've been to, every concert that you've been to at some level is a descendant of what the Grateful Dead were doing. You know, even things like touring cases. They didn't have them in the late 60s. They didn't make anvil cases really until, you know, the, the rock scene grew up enough and people needed this equipment. That's why, you know, one of the more interesting lots I think in the sale is their earliest surviving road case, which was made for carrying film canisters or something. But you know, they were figuring all this out on the fly. And the idea that you would come up with a, a wall of amps and speakers that had to be broken down by two different crews and weighed tons and moved them from every city, you couldn't do that today. I mean, you could barely do it then, obviously. They had to, you know, it was, it was too much of an undertaking. But the fact they even tried it was incredible. more of a casual dead fan because you know i've had you know the working man's dead and american beauty I always had those you know i sort of like the country more country stuff but i got buddies that are hardcore and you know they'll be playing me stuff and i'm like oh, i don't know about that and then recently i was with one of them who's playing something like, hey that's great he's like that's the dead he was so happy and then i had to ask him something like oh i heard this jerry garcia solo on i think it was bertha i can't find it and he's like oh my god you're into it now here let me find it for you you know, the more it is, it is a wormhole that that you can get into for sure, and that's something that people in my position, you know, we do this because we're passionate about what we interact with and and what we are offering to the public. And you know, it, it's great when you have a, a fan base or a client base that's really passionate about things as well. And then you really feel like at the end of the day, you, you make someone happy because they remember that amp, they remember that tour, it really means something to them, and now they can have a piece of it. Once you really start delving into some of this stuff, it's just what an influence they had, not just musically, but in terms of the music and technology. I mean, they were so innovative. You know, for most people, they think of it as a band, but it was also a cottage industry. I mean, those roadies, everybody made those speakers themselves. They came up with new ways of doing live sound. It was all incredibly forward thinking and innovative. At the end of the day, this sale is as much about how the dead were always it's not just improvising musically but in terms of their entire setup and how they approach their business and like you know what if this isn't available we're just going to do it ourselves we're going to make it ourselves that's part of this story which is a really an american story too <laughs> 